uh, around 10.45 at night, between 10.45 and 11, something horrendous happened and Ryan was struck by a train. He knew what was happening and he couldn't do anything to stop it. And that's the most horrendous part of the story, I think, for someone to be so young and to know they're going to be hit by a train and not be able to do anything to stop it. Even just saying out loud now is giving me goosebumps. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. The death of a 14-year-old boy in the seaside town of Portrush has long been a mystery and a web of painful questions for his family. Ryan Quinn suffered a horrendous end when he got stuck in a cattle grid on a dark January night in 2009 as a train hurtled towards him. But what appeared to be a tragic accident would soon become a murder case when allegations that he'd been attacked and chased onto the railway emerged. Now BBC journalist Vinnie Hurl has made a new podcast in an attempt to break the omerta held sacred in a small community group for over a decade. On his new podcast, Assume Nothing, Death on the Tracks, Hurl painstakingly retraces the teenager's steps and discovers the suspects identified by the PSNI in this most unusual case. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Right, well, I've listened to this podcast back to back. I binged it when I was out for a cycle. So um, we'll just get down to where it starts with Vinny. And, and I'm not going to give away the details of it. We'll, we'll, we'll talk as much as we can about the story, but still leave it interesting for people to tune in. How about that? That sounds fantastic. Um, but it starts in the town of Portrush in January 2009 on a very bad night. And Portrush is right up on the North Antrim coast. Um, it's the, the little seaside village town, I'm sure they'll call it, beside Port Stewart, am I right? That's right. It's, it's beautiful up there. Really picturesque. Yeah. People go there to spend their summer holidays, go up for a nice little romantic weekends. So a very different side of the town. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I've been in it many a time. And isn't Ballycastle up around there as well? And Yeah, it's not too no. far. It's on the way. Yeah. It's on the way. It's one of those things, I think, in Northern Ireland's kind of our landscape, it's, it's like the pinnacle. You know, you've got the amusements up there, the beaches, the Airbnb, so that's where people go to relax and have fun. It's not necessarily where people associate with with death and uh, horrific deaths at that. So I didn't remember this case myself, but no doubt in the area and in the north of Ireland, this was an enormous story at the time. So just tell me a little bit about what happened. So 2009, stormy night in Boardrush, and a young guy, 14 years old, Ryan Quinn, he wanted to go out um, and celebrate his his step uncle, his half uh, uncle's uh, 18th birthday party. So he did just that. He went out during the day. He was celebrating with them on a house party. Then went to uh, to a bar, and then uh, around ten forty five at night, between ten forty five and eleven, something horrendous happened, and Ryan was struck by a train. That's the key, the center point to this. Uh, neither of his parents were there at the time when he died. Uh, but his father was there soon after and indeed identified him on the tracks where he lay. So the, the main focus of the program is is what happened that day on the run up to it, why he was there and who he was with. 
and to try and piece together some of those questions that have, you know, as cliched as it is, as, uh, have haunted that family ever since. Because on the face of it, um, uh, you know, being struck by a train is is absolutely horrendous. Um, a 14-year-old boy being struck by a train in a dark night there on his own. Um, and I think without giving too much away, he realised it was going to happen and rang his father for help because he was sort of trapped. Um, and he just simply couldn't get up and run away, which makes it all the more horrifying. But, it, you know, in a way, the simple looking at it clinically, it should be a very tragic accident. Absolutely. And there's still questions over that, exactly what happened. And the police will talk about the, the missing minutes, the 15-minute window that they were trying to piece together, exactly what happened. But you're right when you say he knew what was happening and he couldn't do anything to stop it. And that's the most horrendous part of the story, I think. You know, death is death and death is horrible. But for someone to be so young and to know they're going to be hit by a train and not be able to do anything to stop it. Even just saying it out loud now is giving me goosebumps. It's just horrific. And his mom, Lisa, that was one of the key things she said to me was you know, she kind of tortures herself thinking about his final moments, what he was thinking about, what was going through his head. And you can't comprehend it as a stranger, you or I. So for a mother, I just, it it absolutely gives me chills. Um, it's just horrendous. Mm. You'd find it very difficult to move into that grieving zone and to pull away from that, and particularly from his father. And uh, you've interviewed both his parents and other close relatives on the podcast, and they talk about what happened in the run-up to it. And, you know, they talk very vividly about that night and getting to the scene and just not believing what had happened and it was dark and there was all these, you know, fire brigades and, and ambulance and police around their worst nightmare. Um, but going back to January 2009 and when this story broke, because it was all over the news and it was a big, big story. Um, what were the PSNI saying from the offset? Were they looking for witnesses or were there any suspicions in the very beginning? Well, straight away, they were trying to build a picture. So yes, witnesses was one of the key elements, but they had information because of the circumstances of that night that pointed the their investigation straight away in one particular direction. So they were pretty sure there was more to the story than just a horrific accident. And that's where their investigation went from. And they, they tried to piece it all together um, from that. There were a lot of people and and around the area that night, like it was it was late at night. It was it was January. That area, that bar, that uh, railway crossing, is really really close to the the coast. Literally, you go across the road and you're in the open ocean. So there was a lot of noise, but a lot of people around. And I think that's why the police thought with their initial appeals, there were so many people here. People must have been able to see what happened. Somebody saw what happened. Despite all those other elements happening around them, you know that that was their their main focus. And straight away, their investigation was very much pointed in one direction. And the problem they had was trying to find people to verify. So those consist consistent narratives telling the same story 
uh, about what happened that night. And that was the real challenge that they face. And, and to an extent, when we were making the podcast, you know, we came up against the, the same issues as well. But you're right, it was all over the news. It's such a horrific story, even the basics of it. And the fact that straight away the police said that there is more to this than meets the eye. So papers, local papers, TV, you know, there was a lot of coverage of it. And plus, I think in the northwest and the north coast area here, uh, not to say it's not the same in, in other places in Northern Ireland, but they feel a very personal connection to something when it happens to one of their own. So even the reaction to the podcast, you know, lots of people in that area feel that they have a right to know what happened. And of course, the family obviously feel that way as well. So even from the beginning, obviously, there was talk about, well, Ryan Quinn was too young to have been in a pub, but, you know, so so it was. He was with a family member. Yeah. And I think his parents were somewhat aware of where he was and they were happy enough, or certainly his father was, that he yeah. was with close family. He wasn't just out randomly with a group of teenagers. No. Um, but they're, they're kind of immediately what came up and what I think his father initially spoke to the media about was that, there was some element of that he may have been feeling fearful that night. And when he did ring his father, he was feeling yeah. fearful. He was he was claiming he was being chased. So this yeah. is really the, the the nub of the whole thing. Was he? Um, was somebody, you know, in the pub or during that day threatening him in some way? And was that person close to the scene of where he died? Yeah, and that I think it's the, the the key element of the podcast as well, which we try to to explore. He rang his father on a number of occasions that night. Um, he had been with him earlier in that day, so yes, you're right. His dad knew where he was going uh, to an extent, but um, he rang his dad at one point and asked him to come and join him in the bar. His dad had just finished work. This was maybe forty minutes or so before he was struck by the trains, maybe an hour. Um, uh, and in, on reflection, his dad now says that, uh, his, his name's Ivan, he says he can tell now there was something wrong, uh, but Ryan just, for whatever reason, couldn't vocalize. You know, he was concerned, that's what his father feels, Ryan was concerned for his safety, and he, he was hoping his dad would come up and be there. And then that's another element to this, which is, is sad and horrendous, that his dad you know, on reflection, thinks if only I had gone up there, I, I could have stepped in. Um, but you know, hindsight is a is a remarkable thing. It's it's just well, more, I think anybody as well who has teenagers yeah. knows that they often talk in riddles, and uh, yes. you know they don't tell you exactly what's wrong or what's going on. Yeah, and I think um, he obviously for Ryan, various reasons. Yeah, Ryan was aware that there was something wrong, but I don't think he knew. Of course, he didn't knew what was going to happen, you know, minutes away. So, yeah, the hindsight thing is great, but I don't think even though Ryan was concerned, and there were witnesses that came forward to say they spoke to Ryan and he said he was concerned for his safety before anything happened with the train. So, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. But there's a very big sense of that there is a sort of omerta at play here, that there are people who know um, possibly the side of the story that's darker and who are protecting somebody and maybe out of loyalties or relationships or whatever. Um, you know, that hasn't broken now in, what is it, 14 years? Yeah. Uh, do you think that this podcast will help? I mean, all over the world, podcasts seem to be really hitting home with these cold case 
uh, either murders or suspicious deaths and yeah. kind of, I don't know, there's something about audio that people have a, people seem to feel more intimacy with it than they do the written word, don't they? That's exactly it. I don't know why that is. Even sometimes when it comes to TV sh- shows or, or, or the likes with podcasts, with that audio, I think sometimes it's down to where people listen. You know, if they're out for a walk, if they are, you know, cleaning the house, it's personal. They take it with them. It surrounds them as they go. That's how I consume podcasts. But I, I think the hope is that if there is someone that should be prosecuted for what happened to Ryan or uh, someone or some people, then sometimes over over years, 10, 14 years, whatever it is now, you know, allegiances can change if they exist, not for me to say if they do or they don't, so that there may be people that did say something that know something and they might come forward. And I can say that there have been a few people approach me, people that I, I don't know, people that the family don't know, that do have information that they want to share. And it's for the police to say whether that information is going to make any difference or not. But already, even in a few days since the podcast has been out, we have a people come forward. And even via um, other people that contributed to the podcast have already gone to the police. So again, it's it's a matter of time to see if that makes a difference. You know, listening to his parents' interviews and, you know, in a million years, not to take from his mother, but listening to the father and the conversations he had with him mm-hmm. just as he was you know, as it was about to happen. I'm not sure you could get that same sense of empathy if you could see him, like if you were using two of your senses. It's when you're just listening to his voice and and yeah. you're sort of visualizing the mm-hmm. scene of him trying to get to his son and, uh, yeah. you know, he gets there too late. I mean, for any parent, that it's, is it's just it's, the worst. It's, it's not even what you would call a nightmare. It's it's like a level beyond that. But you're right. You know, when you take away one of the senses, and like he he hadn't spoke about it in that much detail. You know, Ivan would say himself that he struggled, and they all struggled. Of course, they did. That's not something that leaves you. But afterwards, he had lots of issues of his own, and he did some press conferences straight away. But there was a long period there where he didn't talk about it. He didn't talk about it publicly. He didn't go into as much detail as he did for us in the podcast. I think his daughter, Ryan's sister, Zara, um, let's say encouraged him. You know, daughters can be persuasive uh, to to speak to me. I think he was a bit reluctant. But I think it's just because I don't think it is possible to get something more personal than the story of the death of your child and how that happened and your, your unintentional involvement in it. You know, I, I drove up to see him. And even when I got there, I wasn't sure he was going to talk to me because he he wouldn't answer the phone to me. I don't think he's big on phones. So he hadn't replied to text or answered a phone uh, phone call. His daughter had been kind of the, the go-between. And I got there and, you know, made a few coffees. And then we sat in my car. That's where he wanted to talk. So in the car park around the corner from the coffee shop, like nothing, you know, fancy about no that studio, at all. Yeah. No, none of that. And that's what he wanted to do. You know, and we sat there for about two hours in, in my car just talking. And it's a, it was an incredibly personal thing for him to do. And, I'll, you know, I, I'll never, hopefully I will never understand just how painful that is. You just, you just can't comprehend it. But he was very open. And his mum as well. They all were. They all were. Mm. And, you know, in a way, cars are quite a good places to have chats in, aren't they? Yeah. Yes. You know, you, you're, not, you're not looking deep into one another's eyes 
down a Zoom or across a, a studio table. You're sitting side by side. That's they so always true. say if you have a conversation to have with your child that you should, if you have a strict conversation, <laughs> you should bring someone out in the car. And they can't run away either. Well, that's when you're driving, I suppose. But no, well, yeah, no, it was it was an extraordinary interview. Yeah. And, you know, the sense of empathy you'd have for the man and his mother as well. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, when she was talking about the dreams she has now, oh. Yeah. Um, where she she never actually sees him, that they're always mm. either walking, he's walking out a door, she's coming in, yeah. she's aware he's there. But, you know, there's something very much in that, obviously, about their journey to, you know, their journey and grief through she, this. Yeah, she never sees his face. It's mm. he, she, He's always just fleeting. Because she said the last time he saw, she saw him in the coffee shop where she was working earlier that day, she was so busy and the boss was watching and he was looking for a couple of quid to get the boss to go and see his dad. And she said, on reflection, I don't even think I looked into his face. You know, she was milling around and I knew exactly what she meant. You know, I and she said, on reflection, she just wished she'd stopped and looked at him. But you just don't know. You know, you never know when that kind of circumstance presents itself. Um, and it's the same then in that dream that he, you know, she dreams about him all the time. Which does bring her comfort. I, I wasn't sure if it if it would make it harder, but she never sees his face, and he's always she's just missing him, just missing him in the room. He's away, and you know, I I, I think that that there there's definitely something in that. There's something yeah. there, and even Zara you could analyze that. Yeah, even his sister. I think there, there's just so many layers of sadness. You know, people knowing before they did. Uh, you know, when his sister, who was maybe thirteen at the time. Um, coming home from a school disco on a on a bus, and everybody on the bus knew what happened, and no one had told her. So she's on the bus thinking, "Why is everybody crying? Why why is everybody upset?" And no one wanted to tell her until they got off the bus, and somebody, you know, there's some kid that she knew, gave her a hug and and said, "Take that home for your family." And then she asked why, and he told her, and you know that again, such a personal element to anyone's grieving process so and at 13 like that is tough because news spread around the community about his death and i think his identity before he was even identified mm-hmm. and just to be slightly clinical um just for a, an instant um where the he was hit by the train was at the back of this bar he mm-hmm. had left the bar and there was a suggestion that he may have got caught in something his hand might have got caught that he couldn't run away uh, were they able to actually, you know, forensically or scientifically prove that, or or was there just so much devastation with the accident that they they couldn't get to the bottom of that? That he was trapped. Mm. Um, I think the the best thing, and I'm I'm not just trying to to brush you off, but the best thing is to listen to the podcast to get a real insight of that. But what I will say is we we did have a, a access to the inquest. There was an inquest held. So the the documents of that, which included Ryan's autopsy, which does refer to injuries linked to why he didn't move away from the track. So the fact that he he was trapped and how. So yes, uh, we do go into some detail on that, and it is it is something they were able to ver- verify from the autopsy into him. And so, has anything changed there in that place um, since that happened? No, not really. I asked the, the TransLink who are responsible for maintaining that and, and run our railways uh, if there were any issues listed, you know, linked to the track, li- linked to that crossing that he was trapped on. 
and they said there wasn't. There there was an issue with the cameras. So they have cameras pointed at these, and it's not a major crossing that you would use. It's it's almost more of a not quite a private crossing, but it leads onto a laneway. Um, that it's kind of a, a very small road that leads to a couple of houses. So it's not something that will be used all the time. And they have cameras on them, but they're not monitored all the time. They're not watched constantly. They are kind of looked at you know, now and again to see if people are misusing the crossing. But when they removed the, the, the camera equipment after the incident, they found it wasn't working when he died. And and really, there is a chance if it was, that would have caught the entire thing. It would have explained everything away. It would have given an, a literal second-by-second second account of what happened. Another unfortunate part of it, because it seems as if there's all these threads, but they're just not managing to properly come together as yet. Now, maybe they will, and maybe the podcast is what will will um, will do that. But uh, at the... The heart of it really is a suspect who maybe was, had something to do with Ryan's tragic death, his suspicious death, or what could eventually be a murder if the correct information comes forward. You see, it's complex, isn't it? Because you have the prosecutors, uh, because of the nature of how he died, uh, it's not a clean, clear murder as such. Um and then the question is, you know, is there enough circumstantial evidence for it to ever be or whatever? But nonetheless, at the heart of it is a suspect who may have done some harm, shall we say, to Ryan. Could you just tell me a small little bit about him? Well, there, there, there is a suspect. There, there were two suspects that the police were interested in at the time. Um, and when they initially opened up their their investigation, now, in the podcast we go into a bit more detail about what might have happened and how he might have ended up where where he did, and the number of people that might have been involved. But the police, in particular, they had they had two suspects. Um, we did try, we did intend to name the suspects, but due to legal reasons that we we couldn't. One in particular had. Uh, fresh active cases against him which stopped us from from naming him at this point but yeah there's more detail in the podcast but it gives you a kind of a gist and of, course, of the, the reason that the we the beauty couldn't. of a podcast is it isn't ever a finished product no it can always be added to and you know as further information mm-hmm. as i mean which was the classic of the teacher's pet as the further information came in new series were put onto it and, uh, you know, the public almost become the sleuths or they become yeah. the, the people who, who reactivate things. Absolutely. And if there are, if there is something else to, to be told, if there's more information, if there is, again, if there's a need for a prosecution, it's not for me to say, um, but you're right, the public are the sleuths. And we've had people, as I said, we've had people contact us already. There's had people, people that have contacted the police directly. So, people have information that they want to share. So we'll just have to wait and see what happens. But absolutely, there could well be another episode of the, the podcast when we, we see what comes out. So Assume Nothing, Death on the Tracks, produced mm-hmm. and presented by yourself, Vinnie Hurl. And, uh, you know, I would say it is at times harrowing. It's extremely yes. sad, but it, it's a very complex and, and interesting story as well. I listen to it on my BBC Sounds app. Mm-hmm. I'm glad to hear it. That's where it's available, yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> you can get lots of places, but I prefer the BBC Sounds app. I was going to say they make me say that, but they don't really make me say that. But I'm sure they do. <laughs> it's the best place to find it. And not to because I feel the need to plug others under that Assume Nothing brand, but there are some really incredible stories there. And some of them are as harrowing, but also as interesting. And it's it's that mindset. And it sounds slightly cliche now to link it to the name, but assume nothing. Stories are rarely what they seem on the surface, and there's always more to tell. And I think that's what we try and do in, in these series. And you know, with 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 Ryan Quinn and his story, you know, there's definitely more information out there. So it's just a matter of time. Did you have a connection to the story before you started making the podcast? I was aware of it when it first happened because, again, it stops you in your tracks when you hear about that. That's maybe not the best way to describe that, but there we go. It's sort of one of those stories, not to sound too cliched, but it's sort of stayed with Jerry. You always sort of thought about absolutely, it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. His age, what happened, and the family. And like I reached out to the family and I wanted them to be involved. If they had said no, they didn't want to, that might have changed things. You know, it's always it's a different thing when a family want to be part of it. And once they start telling me their story and and their concerns, what they wanted out of it, then I just thought that it just was a no-brainer. It had to, it had to be done, you know. They and and it's fourteen years ago for you know for the likes of myself, the, listening to the story, watching the story on the news, whatever that might be. But it just completely consumes their lives even now, and they they can never escape that. Um, and that's just another layer layer of tragedy that's associated to that uh, to this and I, I just thought if we could do something to help share Ryan's story and their story you know was it the right thing to do okay well listen thank you very much Vinnie Hurl no problem you're very welcome you've been listening to Crime World a podcast from sundayworld.com produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.